Would you all pray with me? Holy God, you are present in our midst, yet you are beyond our comprehension. By your light, we see light. By your healing, we are made whole. And by your mercy, we know your greatness. Turn your gaze upon our weakness and show us the way of your love that we may live with unveiled faces. By your spirit, enlighten our hearts, open our minds, fill our vision with your radiance and give us life as we hear your word today. Amen. So grace and peace to you this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, when I told the kids that I was excited to see them, I didn't mean to exclude all of you. And I have to say that I am, I, words can't describe how happy I am to see all of you here this morning. You know, it seems like an eternity, really, since I last worshipped with you all down here in the way. Almost two weeks ago, I had the opportunity, well, we'll call it an opportunity, to go before the Board of Ordained Ministry to be examined and considered for provisional membership, like provisional ordination. All these are really churchy words. And thank you for your prayers. It felt as though I had all of Mount Olivet with me in Richmond as I met with the four different committees And I'm happy to report back to you that I've been recommended for provisional ordination. That'll happen in... That will happen in June at our annual conference uh, in Roanoke, Virginia. And I look forward to celebrating uh, that moment with my family and, well, all of you in June. But in the meantime, we have a scripture text to take a look at. So much has happened up to this point in the ninth chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, the place where we find ourselves this morning. A few verses ago, the disciples received their mission from Jesus. Christ gave them power and authority over all demons and the ability to cure all diseases. Next, Jesus, along with his disciples, fed 5,000 plus people with a few loaves of bread, and as my friend Marco calls them, some squishy fishes. (laughs) Finally, Jesus revealed that he would undergo great suffering and rejection, and this would all happen at the hands of the elders, the priests, and the scribes. Jesus told his disciples that he would be rejected, that he would be condemned by the theologians, the priests, the pastors, and the lawyers, in Jerusalem. To take it a step further, though, Jesus told his disciples that they too would undergo the same treatment. From there, Jesus retreated up to the top of a mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And there they prayed. And that is where we pick up the story this morning. Once they arrived at the top of the mountain, Jesus And his three disciples began to pray. And while they were praying, an awesome moment occurred. As they prayed, Jesus' face began to change. And his body became dazzling. As if that were not enough, two more people appeared. Moses and Elijah. 
Moses and Elijah are two people who were essential to Israel's identity. Moses led Israel out of slavery in Egypt and also led them through the wilderness. Elijah was a prophet and he pointed to the coming of Christ, reminding Israel that God had promised them freedom through a Messiah that was to come. God's glory had been revealed to both Moses and Elijah in mountaintop experiences. Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, along with the mitzvah, the 613 commandments that we find scattered throughout the Hebrew Bible. And Elijah contested prophets of other faiths on the mountain, pointing to God and God's glory that was promised to Israel. Yet in the midst of that greatness, Moses and Elijah were rejected and persecuted during their days. God's identity and God's faithfulness were revealed and reconfirmed time and time again in the mountains. The appearance of Moses and Elijah alongside Christ, all three in full glory, a glory that only can come from God, our creator, confirmed everything that Jesus had told the disciples up until that point. Through the glorified and vindicated presence of Moses and Elijah, Jesus' prediction of his coming suffering also comes with the assurance of a vindication that was to come. All of these things confirm for the disciples that Christ, Jesus himself, is the bearer of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Peter, James, and John were standing in the midst of divine revelation. And for some reason, their first instinct was to memorialize the location. God was revealed. Christ's identity was given to them in the fullest confirmation of everything that had been shouted down from the heavens at Christ's baptism. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter decides that what the mountain needs are three dwelling places for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. But here's the problem. The the kingdom of God and the full revelation of God's glory cannot be contained. And thus, they, the disciples, and we today must continue on our journey after the mountaintop experience. This journey turns Jesus towards Jerusalem, towards suffering, towards rejection, and towards death. Mountaintop experiences with God often reveal not only the glory of God to us, but also our own callings which come from God. This revelation occurs on literal mountains, but also in the places we go. Just as Jesus and his disciples did to intentionally petition and wait, fully expecting God's glory to be revealed to us. It is on the mountain where rejection and the suffering to be experienced by Christ upon the cross, along with the mystery that was to come in the empty tomb, that's where those are finally realized. And that's what I'm supposed to tell you this morning. 
This next part, I've rewritten four times this morning. I worked on it all week since Tuesday as I was flying back from St. Louis. I still don't know what to say, but we're going to get through it together. So by now, most of you know that as a denomination, the United Methodist Church has decided to tighten, to double down on its restrictions on same-sex marriage, along with the ordination of self-avowed practicing homosexuals. That's their language. It's not mine. It's not our language. Saturday of last week through Tuesday afternoon, I sat in the press box of the Dome at America Center along with my Crackers and Grape Juice podcast crew. We were there to observe. We were there to report. We wanted to give an honest account of what happened in St. Louis. So I sat in the rafters as delegates from all over the world on the floor of the arena proof-texted. They took scripture completely out of context and they weaponized God's word. I wept uncontrollably as the one church plan was defeated in the legislative session, ensuring that it wouldn't make it to the floor for a vote. And as the traditional plan passed, I stood there breathless, not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do, just frozen. I wept, knowing and seeing with my own eyes the impact that this would have on LGBTQ clergy, as well as now all of its ability to live into its mission, a mission that's been given to us by God, been placed before us by God. The language used to draft this way forward along with the language that's currently in our book of discipline, is strange. Quote, incompatible with Christian teaching. Incompatible. When referring to LGBTQ persons, that entire community seems oxymoronic to me. Our denomination's decades-long fight over who's in and who's not, who can be married and who can't be married, who can be ordained and who can't be ordained, misses entirely the life, death, ministry, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. As a denomination, we have entirely missed the point of the gospel. And now, it's time for me to be plainly clear to all of you here this morning. No one, absolutely no one, is incompatible with Christian teaching. LGBTQ persons are not incompatible with the teachings of Jesus Christ, who God has created us to be. Imago Dei, created in the image of God. It cannot be incompatible. The only thing that's incompatible with Christian teaching is sin, which is why Christ tells us that we are in desperate need of his saving grace. And who people are and who they love, it's not a sin. This is perhaps the toughest sermon I will ever have to give in my career. I've told you I've rewritten it a a number of times. I know clergy colleagues this morning who are completely terrified. Since Tuesday evening, I haven't been able to find the words for what I would say this morning. What I have here is the best that I could come up with. But I stood in the room as clergy and lay delegates fell to the ground 
and agony, knowing their ordinations would be taken away from them, knowing that they would be excluded from the church that baptized them and made a commitment to them to help them live into wherever God was calling them. I stood next to Jeff and Steve. Jeff is a Methodist pastor in the West Ohio Conference. His church sign this morning reads, We're not the United Methodist Church you've been reading about. I had lunch with them on Monday afternoon. And I stood next to them on Tuesday afternoon as they held one another in utter shock at what had just happened. You know, both of them, both of them have had experiences in their life being told that they were not worthy. They were incompatible with whatever the teaching was of the church they were at or the school they were at. And they were told they couldn't come back. They were told they couldn't fulfill the calling God had placed on their lives. And as I stood next to them, all I could say was, I'm sorry. I don't even know if I got the words out. I saw people. I saw pastors celebrating as if their side had won, which is odd language when you think about it, because supposedly this church is on the side of mercy and grace, the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. They were celebrating as though this was the greatest moment in their life. I heard young people shouting from the stands that they would never again set foot in a United Methodist church. It's Transfiguration Sunday. This is the day when we're supposed to recall Christ's identity being revealed, connecting Jesus with the liberators and the prophets of Israel's past. While little of what happened in a once indoor NFL stadium resembled a group of people following Christ, today, a few few days removed from the general conference, Jesus is still the transfigured Messiah, guiding his disciples down the mountain and heading towards the cross. Mount Olivet is still a community committed to living out our baptismal covenant, committed to helping others live out their baptismal vows. We are committed to being a community grounded in prayer, living with one another together, and working with one another to further the kingdom of God. It is impossible for us to live life together if people are prevented from being fully part of our called lives together. The General Conference is a legislative body of the United Methodist Church. The United Methodist Church is a 12 million person global institution. The General Conference is the only group of people that can speak for that international institution. What was clear on Tuesday evening was that the General Conference does not speak on behalf of communities who are committed to living our calling of being a community where all people are fully included into the life that Christ has called us to. What's clear to me is that the General Conference cannot and does not speak on behalf of Mount Olivet. We will continue to be, and you need to know that your pastors are committed to this fully. We are committed to being an inclusive community, grounded in prayer, committed to living a life of service to all people and with all people. 
The mountaintop experience the disciples had was not contained on the hill. As they were coming down, a man approached him with a sick child. This was the moment. This was a moment for healing. And the disciples had forgotten what Christ had given them just a few days ago. The disciples forgot to extend grace, the same grace that had been given to them by Jesus. But when the disciples failed to act, Christ acts. Christ stepped in and Jesus healed this boy. We cannot forget the mission that Christ has given to us to be a community welcoming of all people into the life and ministry of this community. And we do this regardless of race, culture, ethnicity, age, sexual orientation, gender identity, faith or family or socioeconomic status, education, politics, physical or mental ability, or faith history. That's the mission that's been given to this community by God. As we come down from the mountain, having the glory of God revealed to us in its fullest, fullest, Jesus is guiding us and revealing the pain in our midst. But we don't have to sit back and wait. You know, after all, what good is a mountaintop experience if we're not radically transformed and compelled to see the world as Christ does? The journey down the mountain is full of uncertainty and it's full of chaos. There will be moments when people forget their own calling and fail to see the world as Christ does. But the journey down the mountain culminates in the empty tomb where all of us are freed from the pain of sin. The pain we inflict upon other people and ourselves when we fail to live as the body of Christ globally and locally. That is what Christ has called us to do. Thanks be to God.